Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the 14th encounter of the bullshit artists. I'm Roy Verado here with Jack Crittenden. How you doing, Jack? Well, I'm here. <laughs> You're still here, huh? I'm alive. <laughs> Survived Thanksgiving. Same. Good. Uh, and you did as well, I see. Yep, barely. The major question is, did Clouseau survive? <laughs> yes, he survived so well he's been sleeping since last Thursday. <laughs> oh, tryptophan. Yeah. Times two. Exactly. He is. He's been putting on a little little poundage since the move to New York. I don't know uh, what the reason for that is, but I mean, he's not fat. He's up to about 10 pounds. Um, he, but, he's, a, he's a house cat. Yeah, for sure. So when you were in Sedona, he wasn't outside running around. No, I kept him indoors. He, he wanted to get outside pretty badly. Yeah, but there, uh, there, there are a lot of uh, predators there. Yeah, definitely. Not, not and that also, there aren't not, not that there aren't in New York. They're rats the size of Clouseau, if not bigger. For sure. Plus, um, he, I mean, he's you know disabled. He only has one eye, so uh, I don't know how well he can judge, you know, an escape route or whatever. <laughs> Distances. Yeah. Waving, waving his paw in the air. <laughs> exactly. You're not close enough, Clouseau. Move in. Yeah, you got a few inches to go there, buddy. <laughs> so yeah. He's doing well. So, what do you have? Uh, what do you have going on? Uh, not too much, you know. I, uh, of course, as is my tradition with uh, your assignments, I'm going to have to ask for an extension <laughs> on the on the request for jokes uh, that we discussed last encounter. I haven't had time to work on them, so. Fair enough. Fair okay. enough. I, I wasn't anticipating any. Not that I thought you wouldn't do it. I just wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't anticipating that you would. Well, I appreciate your leniency as always. Sure. Um, but Extension I, granted. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but it is something, I mean, you know, I mentioned it in passing in our last encounter, but it is something that I have been thinking about and am still taking seriously and considering doing whether it comes to fruition, we'll see. But I was, mentioning to you another project I've been working on and you suggested maybe it'd be worth talking about a little bit. I haven't um, sort of acted on this yet, but I've been brewing up a sort of an Instagram project that I'm, the working title for which is Philosophy in a New York Minute. And the premise is basically that I would travel around the city in interesting and ideally relevant locations. So showcasing some type of architecture or whatever that would then be relevant to my discussion within a one minute limitation of a certain philosophical topic. And my idea for the start, at least, is to try to explain some key concepts from, uh, you know, major figures building off of my experience teaching, you know, four or five times now this philosophy of human nature class at Fordham. So well, tell me, a few of those. 
how this is going to work. How do you, are you selecting architecture that you just find interesting or mm. you think will somehow link to the topic? Hopefully both. So um, for example, like I was just working earlier today on uh, trying to draft a one minute you know, piece about Hobbes's Leviathan. And um, the Leviathan, of course, as you know, and maybe some listeners know, is that word comes from the biblical reference to like sea monsters. And uh, there's, of course, the famous hanging whale skeleton at the American Museum of Natural History here in the city. So that could be one example of where I could sit in, you know, under that or in front of that or whatever, and have this striking image that connects visually with the subject matter in a way that I may or may not reference, but that, you know, certainly insiders, people that are already familiar with philosophy would, would get. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the intuition there. Yeah. My, my first thought was you would go to the New York zoo, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like the idea of the hanging whale. The hanging yeah. I could go to the, the Bronx zoo. Oh, I don't know if they have whales, though. Yeah, I, there might be another. Zone I wasn't in York, thinking. Of, I was just thinking of you know the war of all against all. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you're going to pick a location that has some relationship to the topic. You hope. Mm-hmm. Are you? You're going to film it yourself. Are you going to use your phone? Is this going to be sort of low budget, low key? <laughs> It's yes, it's going to be re- as high budget as a low budget can take me, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I have some basics and I've had these things for some time. That's why it's kind of easy for me to, to at least try to put this into practice. Um, you know, just equipment that I've collected over the years, including for this podcast, as well as for remote teaching and other things. So I have a tripod. I have a remote control for my iPhone. Um, I have a what the hell is it called? A, a lapel mic um, from my days doing interviews for Extinction Rebellion. And so I can uh, use some of that technology that will hopefully place me at least a little bit above average in production value, but it's not going to be multi-camera. It's not going to be, you know, there's not going to be any special effects. And the idea is that it will probably be a single shot that I can maybe manipulate a little bit in post-production with like a zoom, like zooming in and things like this. Uh, but yeah, it's primarily, that's why the, the location will be key. And part of what the city lends itself so well to this type of thing is that there are so many striking visual locations in the city in such a variety that I can just post up on a bench or a chair or whatever and uh, let the background do its thing. And you're going to be scripted or are you going to have a script, but then go off script when you're before the camera? A little bit of both. Okay. I'm drafting, I'm drafting a minute's worth of, you know, thoughts that are concise and hopefully express everything I want to do. And like, at least historically, I've had quite a good memory for that kind of thing. So I can memorize, um, I can memorize that pretty easily. And then I think it will come out with some improvisational adjustments as I deliver it. Right. And there will be uh, any audience that gathers will be impromptu. You're not going to be bringing 
people to the scene? No, no audience. And in fact, I'm sure any audience that arises will be an average average New Yorker is telling me to get the fuck out of the way or something like right. that. Right. Asshole, get off the sidewalk. You know. Right. <laughs> well, you do have, as you say, a New York minute, so it's not going to be that inconvenient. Right. That's my hope. And uh, I'm also hopeful that I can kind of leverage my status as a as an actual philosophy PhD student uh, to get access to places that might otherwise you know, give me the side eye if I'm trying to film there. Because I've also been thinking of doing some interior stuff. Um, like, for example, I was thinking about Rousseau's concept of natural religion from Emile, which I teach in my human nature class. And there's the interchurch center here, not far from where I live, which has some very intriguing, you know, multi-faith uh, sort of displays inside that could lend itself well, I think, to a background for a discussion of the, you know, the unity of all religions, basically. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, Lindisfarne Foundation? William uh, Thompson? Yes, yes, Thompson. I only know it vaguely from our discussions, basically. And you, I think you gave me one of his books. Well, I wouldn't be surprised given you have 32 boxes of books. <laughs> True. I have the, uh, the Crittenden collection. You do. Yeah. He, for a while, Lindisfarne, uh, the origin of the, of the, name comes from a monastery off the coast of Ireland, <clears throat> which I, I can't remember what century it was. 13th century, let's say that sounds good. Uh, and he, that's why he took the name uh, Lindisfarne from the, from the monastery. He wanted it originally to be uh, bucolic, mm. very much like Rousseau. So he ha had the idea of having an intentional community and they the foundation bought some, as I remember, kind of rundown summer camp in upstate New York, uh, but they ran out of money or couldn't make the payment, something happened, but they ended up moving to a church in, in Manhattan, and I think oh. it was called St. John the Divine. Uh, yes, I know that church, I think. I think well, it's actually near to where I live, if it's the I one I'm thinking I was going to suggest of. that as a possible... Um, location when they I don't I think they bought the church and it was completely run down it was it was dilapidated and they really? redid the interior I think it's really now quite nice but I'm going on on memory here and I'm not really sure what happened and maybe uh, it's now become exclusive and they throw you out but it was <laughs> ecumenical you know it, interdenominational at the very least probably okay. interfaith but it might be a place you could scope out as a location you yeah no I, I i'm glad you brought that up i because i um i had been thinking of that spot actually as a location already i just googled it to double check right now um but if it if it is uh saint john the divine it's actually a, a pretty large cathedral um right uh, near columbia here in morningside heights so whatever the association is i'm going to research it a little bit more but if there's some kind of connection um to linda's farm then that makes it all the more appealing i was going to use it because they have a park to the um south of the cathedral that has views of the cathedral and i could sit in the park no problem you know yeah so yeah um, but it's a very 
uh, it's like Gothic architecture, you know, it's very nice. And once your, your minute is complete, <laughs> where do you upload this? What's your plan? So the idea is that I, you know, and like I said, and uh, this is still in the planning phase and all that kind of stuff. So we'll see how it shakes out. But the idea, part of, part of what I'm inspired here, first of all, is that I, one of my roommates is a classical music composer. And he, during the pandemic, I think he started about a year ago, began using his Instagram, personal Instagram page to host minute long transcriptions, musical notation of wild animal sounds and especially bird calls. And this took off and he has like 40,000 followers now. And moreover, it has connected him professionally uh, with other composers and people around the world. So it's really become a quasi, it's been a way for him to express himself, but also, you know, an actual professional boon for him uh, in, in more ways than one. And so in speaking with him, you know, he suggested because I've worked with him before, actually, I, I wrote the program notes for his composition titled Welcome to the Anthropocene. Um, and so he and I have kind of collaborated uh, a little bit before, and he was suggesting and kind of, you know, inspired me to think about doing a project like this of uploading to Instagram just one minute long because everybody uh, has no attention these days as evidenced by um, multiple people in our audience who listen to these podcasts at 10 times speed or whatever. Uh, 3.5. Yeah, exactly. My nephew said 3.5. I, I, yeah, maybe he does. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I've heard from other people as well, but point being is uh, yeah. So that was part of my inspiration there to see, and also to challenge myself to see if I could, find a way to craft a one minute long explanation of the kinds of things that do not typically lend themselves to one minute long explanations, right? Like something that's well, something there that may you, be, there may be good reason for that. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so maybe I'll fail, <laughs> right? but I, that's why I want to try and do it in a way that I can get a little bit across or at least, you know, raise some questions in people's minds or whatever, while at the same time being being visually stimulating and something that can actually spread and maybe uh, appeal to people, not only people who are who like philosophy in the same way that my friends posts appeal to people that like classical music, but also a, a wider audience who maybe has never encountered this kind of stuff and might never encounter it in another setting. Yeah. And you know, that challenge for me, one of my all-time favorite quotes is from Orson Welles. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but he says, the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. And I just love that quote because for me, for I just, it's so true. I feel like it's extremely true, whether it's a, whether those limitations are a deadline or a page limit. I mean, you, you know this probably at least intuitively because you always used to assign these five page essays that people hated writing because they couldn't get their message across in such a short amount of time. Right. So, well, they could. Yeah. But they felt they weren't used to that. right? No, that's right. They were were used to doing what is required, encouraged for sure. And maybe required in academic circles, which is padding. Right. Pad. Uh, Okay. So you're going to do them 
have you thought about doing maybe a series on one philosopher or one topic? They're each going to uh, be a minute, but oh but, yeah, but you would start with one and then you'd say, "I, I want I have more to say." So maybe you do four or five of these. That's a good idea. And I might do that. I don't think I'm going to start with that. But I think that that's something I've also been thinking about how I could make variations on this down the road, right? So my first inclination is to do sort of discrete, to focus on discrete topics from distinct philosophers. So it's sort of like a sprinkling, you know, we'll have some Plato, we'll have some Hobbes, we'll have some Sartre or whatever, different periods, different thinkers, different topics to kind of cast a wide net. But I like that idea that there could be a series, maybe a part one, part two, part three on something that I can't quite crunch or that maybe would benefit from being filmed at multiple locations in some way, you know? Yeah. 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 Or, or maybe one topic from different philosophical perspectives. So yeah. If, you, if uh, we were talking about the state of nature, you said, this is what Hobbes said. Yeah, I need to take notes on what you're saying. (laughs) This is what Locke said. This is what Rousseau said. Yeah, that's interesting. I had I had actually been thinking that when I was drafting the Hobbes piece today that I was working on because I was like I wanted to make a reference to Rousseau, who you know basically just exterminates Hobbes (laughs) in the second discourse by pointing out that Hobbes has simply projected his own contemporary biases onto the so-called state of nature you know uh i wanted to make some kind of oblique reference to that and i was like i can't you know it's too one minute is nothing but then to maybe craft it in a way that i can string a few things together that are connected while still standing on their own i think that has some merit especially when you think about hashtags and the way that people link things, for example, through those. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just brainstorming. And if yeah. any of our listeners have thoughts as well, I'd be happy to hear from them. Um, so is Instagram will give you a minute? Yeah. I mean, you can go longer, but it's like 59 seconds basically, or like one minute is like the standard video format. And that gets much more exposure than anything that's longer than that. So I'm about to reveal my <laughs> my Neanderthal understanding of technology. Sure. Uh, what about TikTok? Ah, uh, see, I can't do it. First of all, I'm just too old. Like I don't have a TikTok account, and I just can't bring myself to make one. But also, like my understanding of TikTok, I know you can create like longer TikToks or link multiple TikToks together but the format or the platform itself is like designed to be these quick hits of like 15 seconds onto the next thing, 15 seconds onto the next thing. Um, But like I said, I actually haven't really used it. So I don't even know, but it is gaining in popularity, you know? Yeah. And people cross post between these two things between Instagram and TikTok. So, but it might just be a bridge too far for, for me in my old age. (sighs) (laughs) that's sad that's so sad you're over the hill i am Uh, some years ago uh, my co-author debbie campbell and i had this idea that we would go into a cafe 
and we'd set, sit in a table and would put a sign, large sign that said, let's talk philosophy and invite people to come sit down and engage for some period of time. Maybe we'd set a time limit. Maybe we'd have a timer there saying, okay, we've got 15 minutes or who knows. Maybe we wouldn't. Yes. Um, but I, I still think that's a good idea. It's, a, it's akin to uh, the idea of Socrates, the Socrates Cafe, you know about that? Uh, I'm not sure. It's a book. I'm pretty sure that was the title. And there may be a series of books after that by the same author. But the Socrates Cafe, it's the idea that this guy, and I think he was either a philosopher or like you, um, a philosopher in training, getting his <laughs> doctorate. But he would go into places and uh, I, I, I think it was prearranged so people knew this was happening. He would lead a philosophical discussion, much the way Socrates did. But the idea Debbie and I had was that it would just be impromptu. You just go plop the sign down on the table. <laughs> you know, a place like Starbucks where they where maybe they won't be in a hurry to throw you out. Maybe they will, but they'll let right. you sit there, and uh, people would come up and say, "Let's talk about existentialism," or yes. you know, quantum mechanics. I don't know, whatever they want to talk about. Um, yeah, I could see I you doing that. I like that idea. And it's funny that you kind of mentioned that because it reminded me of this, something I used to watch quite often a long time ago uh, in the early days of my internet usage, really on slate.com. I don't know if you've ever been on that website, but it's a, it's one of the older news websites on yeah. the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it used to be quite good. It sucks now. It has sucked for some time. Well, but, yeah, a lot, a lot of people who were, I think, very good writers and reporters left. Yeah, exactly. There was a yeah. management change, I think. And, and I, I remember, I mean, it was my homepage for years, Slate.com. I, I really liked Slate and I was super disappointed when it kind of collapsed. Um, but they used to host interviews by this guy, um, Alex Chadwick, who he did had the series where he would sit down at a table or something out at a park or wherever on the street. And he just had a little cardboard sign that said interviews 50 cents and it attracted people in uh, many of whom were sort of confused about whether they pay him or he pays them the 50 cents for the interview. And so they would like this, that was a common joke. People would approach and say something like that. And then he would just talk to them uh, and, you know, and he would do either. He would either pay them or let them pay him. He had a jar, you know, with coins and he would just talk to them for a little period of time. And it was, it was good. It was very, it was like slice of life. You know, people would open up and, and it would be just a few minutes or whatever. Uh, and then they'd go on their way, but that, but did it when work? you were saying so, that, so he, me. he would pay them or they would pay him. Uh -huh. Did it also work that he would interview them or they would interview him? A little bit from what I can remember, you know, this was a while, this was a long time yeah, ago. It doesn't but, say, yeah, it just says interview. Yeah. Sense. If I recall, it was more conversational, you know, it was, so it yeah. was back and forth. Yeah. He would kind of ask them questions because he was a journalist and was prepared, you know, but then they would inevitably uh, ask him questions too. So yeah, it's a, it's a good concept. You just have to make sure you have a good hook, right. To reel people in. And especially here in the city where, on every block, there's assholes with clipboards trying to harass you for surveys or, you know, whatever. It's hard to get people to, to yeah. stop. 
Yeah. Well, the beauty of the sign, first of all, as you as you <laughs> can imagine, having lived in Arizona for a number of years, right. it's not anything you find around here. You may find it in New York, but you don't find it around here where people have a sign that said, let's talk philosophy. And they come over, <laughs> and I would imagine they would do exactly what you what you suggested people did with the interviewer. And they mm -hmm. say, well, what's this about? To which you say, well, sit down and let's find out. Exactly. Well, I don't want to sit down. Well, why not? <laughs> and then we're talking philosophy. Then you're off. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, I like that. And I could see myself doing something like that at some point as well, especially if I managed to get this series and this idea off the ground and gain some traction. Yeah. Yeah, you know. that's a good way to begin. Uh, speaking of philosophy, this is an aside. Mm. Uh, I have been for several years a subscriber to Masterclass. Mm. And Masterclass, do you, are you familiar with that? I know the name, and I actually just recently saw an ad that I think Cornell West was giving one of these that, Masterclasses. That's, that's, where, that's where I'm headed. Oh, okay, nice. <laughs> so Masterclass began, uh, I'm going to say five years ago. I, I don't remember which way I'm, I'm too generous or not generous enough. I'm going to say five years ago. They began enlisting well-known people to teach courses on various subjects. So um, Christina Aguilera teaches a course on singing and Steph Curry teaches a course on basketball and Serena Williams teaches a course on on tennis. Um, the first one I watched from beginning to end was Aaron Sorkin, who was doing a screenwriting uh, class. That would be interesting. And it was very, very good. And the reason I think it was particularly good is toward the end, maybe the last four sessions, Sorkin took his students, and I'm going to say he had five students, and he gave them an assignment, which he himself participated in. And the assignment was, let's write the first episode <laughs> of, I think it was the last, no, the, let's write the first episode of the new season of West Wing that I wasn't on. So Sorkin wrote, I think, the scripts for the first three, possibly four. Okay. And after that, he never watched an episode of West Wing. Oh, the, only the first four episodes or first four first seasons? First four seasons. Okay. Sorry, the first yeah. four seasons. So I never he, really was into the West Wing, honestly. So I, was, I, yeah. I was, was when it was on and still am a huge fan. Okay. So in the politics and film class that Kim uh, Friedkin and I taught at ASU, right. I used the West Wing episodes from the West Wing to set up various topics. Mm. Anyway, Sorkin said to his students, look, I have no idea what, what the what season, let's call it season four. Episode one, <laughs> season four is about. I know how I left it. Mm. I don't know what they did with it. So they worked together, kind of brainstormed and, and wrote this episode. And I thought, this is fantastic. This is really, <laughs> this is really good. It's, it's fun to watch. It's great for the students. From then on, every class was a disappointment. <laughs> yeah. He peaked early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because the master class consists of these experts, Cornell West, which I want to get to. Yeah. Uh, talking. So uh, there was a class on screenwriting by the woman 
Rhonda, uh, the woman who did um, Scandal and a couple uh, of other shows. Uh, I don't know. Chandra, I can't remember. Chandra Rhymes, I Chandra think. Chandra Rhymes. Yeah. She, it's just, she's just talking. Yeah. And I said, so I wrote these Like a lecture, people. you mean, or something? Yes, like it's boring. people sitting yeah. down and lecturing. It's lecturing yeah. about, and then it got to the point where they were talking about how I work. Mm. My, the reason, one reason I subscribe is that my, my sons are all in the arts of various kinds. And so their aspects, for example, Ron Howard does one on directing. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Helen Mirren do uh, classes on acting, um, classes on screenwriting, obviously, and other forms of writing. So mm. as, it's an open uh, ticket for my sons to, to sign on and watch anytime they're interested. Well, you know my attitude about lecturing. This isn't yeah. helping. No. So I wrote to the masterclass people and I said, you have an opportunity here, a great educational opportunity, but where are the students? Where, right. is the, where is the interaction with students and the feedback from masters to students? Isn't that the whole point? <laughs> I, I mean, otherwise, I can go to a talk by Samuel L. Jackson on acting. Right. Or Neil That's Gaiman not a class, though. No, that's yeah. not a class. Yeah. So it, it turns out that Cornell West is doing a master class on philosophy. Mm. And they give you a two and a half minute teaser. And it's Cornell West doing what they all do, sitting in a uh, chair, facing a camera, to damn. which he says, and this is where I was headed with that. Oh, okay. He said, let me tell you what philosophy is. Philosophy is about studying the human condition. And I thought, what? <laughs> right. That's part of philosophy. Right. But to That's say that. not philosophy. No. What are you talking about? I can't philosophy. If I'm, if I'm wondering about... Uh, the, the nature of the universe. Right. That's not philosophy. Well, it is in the sense that you're human wondering about it, but that's different. Exactly. So it was so limiting. I, I didn't go on. So I should, I should give him the benefit of the doubt and go on and see what he's talking about. But, but my focus is on the human condition. So it's not that I am insensitive or right. impervious to what he's saying. It's just that it suddenly just seemed completely limiting. Where do you get the idea that, that that's what philosophy is? It just struck me as, as completely odd. So I agree. It's also, you know, it's very anthropocentric, first of all. Uh, totally. And, you know, the idea that there's nothing to philosophize about except for the human condition. I, like, I completely agree with you. It's, a, it's an important and maybe you could argue even the most important part of philosophy, but it's not the only part and to me it's sort of a you're doing a disservice to misrepresent it in that way i know he personally you know is very focused on that type of work and uh whatever and me too and you too <laughs> but yeah if, if he had said if he had said my take on philosophy my philosophy mm. focuses on the human condition i'd go okay but the the general claim philosophy is x right it just strikes me as something that needs to be examined philosophically. Right. right. He should be, he should be giving, if he is going to define it at all or attempt to define it at all, you would expect that he would give some kind of more generalized or uh, content neutral or like meta level definition so that 
he and then to, he could very easily move into focusing on the human condition but ha, you know focus on focus on the form focus on the method of inquiry or something like that you know just, just, first you know i mean just honor children by saying philosophy is about wonder right yeah isn't that what aristotle says curiosity like, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's curiosity Right. So a five-year-old can can be philosophical in the sense that they're wondering and trying to do it maybe in a systematic way. You know, they're, they're kids who do things like, well, let me see if I can dig my way to China. Well, right. you know, they start digging and suddenly say, well, this is going to be really hard. Well, why is it going to be hard? Because I'm finding all kinds of things. Number one, number two, I'm learning, gee, it must be really far away. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's so, the Dewey approach, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the Dewey approach. Exactly right. That's That's Dewey's view. Well, uh, I will be intrigued. I'm sure since you have a subscription, I'm sure you'll watch the episode because why wouldn't you? It's still Cornell West, you know. Yeah, but, I, I want to see where he goes. Yeah. I want to see where he does. But I was just, I was disappointed. I was surprised and then disappointed. Uh, so my assumption is that if you sit down with the, at a table with a son that says, <laughs> let's talk philosophy, you are not from the get-go limiting it. If someone sat down and said, I want to talk mm. about what preceded the Big Bang Theory. You're not going to say, nope, nope, I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's not philosophy. That's it's not the human condition. Go go talk about astrophysics over here with no. somebody else. Yeah. No, for me, if I were to do something like that, it would be much more about, uh, it would be much more Socratic, I think. Um, and maybe sneakily so. I think I might, you know, let people say what they want to say or ask what they want to say, ask, bring up whatever they want to bring up. But my role then would be just to be a, you know, a springboard or whatever, a sounding board, I should say, and to reflect back to them and then ask questions that will maybe uh, bring them to say interesting things, right? Yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah. I could see that being entertaining for, yeah, for myself me, and for watchers. <laughs> I think may maybe like you, but perhaps uh, even more so. For me, part of the fun would be having someone sit down and say, what do you want to talk about? Mm. They would come up with a topic and then say, how was that interesting to you? Or why, how did you come on to that topic? Because I want to know about them. <laughs> right, exactly. And then we'd get into the philosophy, perhaps. But yeah, for me, it's much more interesting to find out about them. Yeah, the I'm philosophy in the human condition exactly exactly the philosophy would be an, a, a subtle interrogation technique you know yeah, to get to, for an anthropological study yeah that would be that's right that'd be the topic um i had another aside when you were talking about doing the the new york minute uh lecture on some topic related to philosophy uh -huh. and i thought about what you said about attention span <laughs> yeah. And I just read this and I don't know whether it's true. So, you know, the shortcut for students who don't want to read <laughs> a well-known text, whether it's philosophy or say a novel, is to go to what used to be called Cliff's Notes. Right. Now I think called Spark Notes. I think they coexist or maybe one, not the other. They both, they've both been around for a while anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Because I might used them. <laughs> well, Okay, you may appreciate this then. Apparently it's come out that Bob Dylan, when he gave his Nobel Prize acceptance oh, speech, no. <laughs> referenced 
I'm going to say three. I'm not sure. Three great works of literature, one of which was Moby Dick. Yeah. And in the speech, he was using quotations and descriptions of characters and actions. And it turns out, according to this article, they were drawn from Sparks notes. Yeah. That, you know, Melville never said this. This appears nowhere in the text. This is Sparks notes. And I thought it's, yeah, okay. It, it's, it's okay if you're an undergraduate using right. Cliff's notes or Spark notes. Even then you don't want to get caught out. Of course, <laughs> you're yeah. giving the Nobel Prize acceptance speech for literature. <laughs> you're caught not just plagiarizing, but plagiarizing from a, a, a source that condenses and apparently, uh, I don't want to say misstates, but takes some <laughs> license with the text. Yes, that is that is pathetic, but hilarious yeah. uh, and somehow fitting, I think, for Dylan. I don't know. In that forum, I, that always kind of like they've given those prizes to people like him. You know, not that the Nobel Prize means anything. I was just talking about this the other day with my students because Sartre uh, rejected his right famously. Yeah. And uh, but, you know. Nevertheless, it's like this it's very self-important prize that attempts to stay relevant, perhaps by awarding to somebody like Dylan, uh, you know, Bob Dylan, or not that his work is without merit, right? Of course, it's fantastic, but uh, you know, shouldn't they maybe make a new category <laughs> for him and for people like him well, instead of literature, as yes. evidenced by the fact that, that he plagiarizes? Yeah, yeah, we have we have a new category: the plagiarists, Nobel Prize in plagiarism. Uh, yeah, there's some people who have won that I, I really admire, but I think yeah. there was some talk that they were thinking about giving it to Muhammad Ali. Oh, for, yeah, for, for, yeah, for exactly for his his doggerel. I, I think that, wow. that maybe that was just a joke. I uh, mean, give him you could give him the peace prize more justifiably. That's I mean, probably he, right know, for his civil yeah. disobedience, like you know, that's or again, like create a new category or categories you know although i think they're limited by the trust or whatever that was set up by that guy that invented dynamite right who, yeah. <laughs> who founded the prize yeah nobel yeah, yeah. exactly so we, we drifted yeah. away from your your idea your your conceptual philosophy ah uh, yeah yeah you know your performance performative philosophy Exactly. It's just it's just an idea, but it's I think a perhaps promising one. And it also, you know, it it just has some practical appeal to me insofar as like I was thinking about this after, you know, moving back to the city after being gone for a year and I had lived here for four full years before that. And there's just so much of the city that I that remains unexplored to me. And I think that even if you're born and raised here, that's always going to be the case because this place is, it, it's, first of all, it's so dense, but also it changes so quickly that if you were to start trying to visit every block or every neighborhood one by one, by the time you made it around the halfway through the circle, so to speak, you know, the, where you started would have changed <laughs> and mm. you'd miss something new. Like it's just so vibrant and dynamic. Point being is I want to use this series, if I do it, to give myself an excuse to visit places around the city that I haven't been. You know, cost of living is so high here. I might as well get the most out of the city in that way. You know, so it's almost an excuse to be a tourist a little bit. Yeah. 
you know, so there's like that kind of practical side in my own life as well to doing it. Do you have a list of, of how, how are you starting this? Is it a list of topics or is it a list of philosophers or both? It's a little bit of both. I'm primarily thinking of drawing from the, the philosophers and the works that I've been teaching in this course since I've taught it so many times and I know this material so well. That's part of why I feel like I can condense it somewhat successfully at least, you know, all I want to get across is one concept, one idea, or even just the, the tip of the iceberg of one concept, you know? Um, and I think, I, I think, like I said, I have enough familiarity and experience with those thinkers and topics to do it. Um, and I've been challenging myself. I've been preparing some of these over the past couple of weeks in my spare time, just jotting down and then timing myself as I read it, you know, okay. 58 seconds I can do this you know yeah um how are you how are you uh starting are you starting <laughs> by okay so let's imagine you go to the hanging whale right are you going to start do you, are, are is your thought to start it by saying uh who was Thomas Hobbes and what did he think or here's what Hobbes said about this or is it a a question like are, he, are humans by nature competitive competitive and predatory mm, i have been thinking about that and in the course of drafting these i've worked through a few different approaches and especially i have found just through like the sheer attrition of trying to hit that one minute mark that i've had to cut and cut and cut so i don't have the luxury if i want to say anything meaningful or significant at all in the minute that I have, I don't have the luxury of any, you know, fat of any kind of, so like thus far for the ones I've written, I basically just start by naming the philosopher and diving right in. Jean-Jacques Rousseau says, blah, blah, blah. Or Jean-Jacques Rousseau has this concept, natural pity, I'm more probe, whatever it might be. And then going from there, attempting in the first sentence to just make that statement, give something like a definition in either that sentence or maybe the next or maybe even the next, and then comment on it a little bit. And each one thus far, I've been ending with a question, hmm. turning the analysis and, and, the, and the focus onto like the current day. So talking about natural pity, I give Rousseau's de sort of definition, contrast it as he does with um, the golden rule. And then at the end, sort of ask something to the effect of, you know, is it possible for us today to access natural pity or has it been lost uh, with the, you know, inescapability of civilization? Something like that, but more pointed. You know, I can't remember right now off the top of my head. And then you'd pick that up again. That's that's just the end. I mean, or do you mean right, in a different right, one? But I mean, you pick it up in in, in the next. I might, segment, or you might just leave it. I'm I'm I. It's that's part of. I hadn't thought about this, but that's part of maybe the one of the appeal. You know, of the of ending it in a question like that is that it could be left to stand on its own, or it could be linked into like we were talking about earlier, a, a certain series or a thematic um, continuity of some kind, you know, but yeah. again, it's like all of this, like this is 
it's important to brainstorm and think about and discuss these things. And you've already given me some good ideas, but it's very much still putting the cart before the horse insofar as I'm still drafting these and haven't produced any of them. And some of the real challenges are going to be the actual production process, filming, editing, et cetera, et cetera, which is why I'm trying to keep it as minimalistic as possible. And I recently sure. rewatched, um, rewatched uh, Slavoj Žižek's Pervert's Guide to Cinema, his film documentary. Have you ever seen that? I don't know if you're... No. Yeah, it, it came out in like 2006. Žižek has two films that I think are really good. They're sort of philosophical documentaries. The first is The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. And then the second, which I think came out in like 2011, is The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, which he still uses film to com convey a lot of his points there. But I was studying his approach, uh, his production choices and design choices in The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, which I think is a, is a superb, or excuse me, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, which I think is a superb film. And he does, he does much the same thing that I'm describing that I might try to do, although he has, it's more, somewhat more sophisticated because he has a crew. Um, but it's still fairly straightforward. He sort of stands still with a striking background behind him or relevant background environment and speaks about the topic, uh, maybe moves around a little bit, maybe is seated, but it's basically just him talking with, again, that relevant background. Now, one of the things that he's able to do in Pervert's Guide to Cinema is digitally insert himself into scenes. So, for example, he puts himself into Morpheus's chair in The Matrix in the scene where Morpheus is giving Neo the choice between the red and the blue pill. And he you know, speaks about some of the philosophical implications of The Matrix from within that scene, which is super cool. And, you know, I don't I have a green screen, but I don't think I have the means or the technology to do something like that. But anyway, I've just been trying to take some cues from that because. I think it's probably one of the best philosophical films ever made and it saw some success. So what would happen if you approached your doctoral committee <laughs> and said, you know, I'm writing a dialogue. Why don't I just film it? And yeah, I'll present real. my dissertation as a two hour film, philosophical film. That would be something. <laughs> would they buy that? That I the I think they would buy almost anything as long as it as long as it meets certain scholarly norms. I think I mentioned to you before that somebody at TC recently published or defend successfully defended their dissertation as a graphic novel, you know, basically a a, a long comic book. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, so if it could be done in a way that satisfies whatever conventional academic criteria, citations, et cetera, then I think, I think they'd probably go for it, honestly. And I do have like John Broughton. I mean, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if I could follow through on it, although the wheels are turning, but John Broughton uh, at TC, whom, or at least whose work you know, um, developmental psychologist, he for some years has been doing cultural studies and he runs the 
Film Education Research Association or something like that at TC, which I have presented at uh, in 2018. I, he invited me to give a talk at their meeting, annual I meeting. Saw, I saw that talk. Yeah. No, was that it? No, it was a classroom, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was in a classroom, but yeah. it was part of their annual meeting. Yeah, I saw that. And I, you know, I used film in that to make, to do well, that. So it's not foreign to me to do you know, something. So, like as that. long as you submitted a script, which you would do, and it would have, the script would be in essence, your dissertation with all the citations you would need. True. You've got the NYU film school just down the street. Yeah. And Fordham also has quite a robust theater department. Um, well, but I was thinking the film school, because if you said to people there, look, as a project. Right. You, you take this on, I'll give you full credit, mm. cinematic credit. Yeah. Uh, and, and you film the dialogue. That'd be That's a very interesting idea. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to think I, about that. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you when I applied for the Bigelow essay prize, I wrote 85% of my essay as a dialogue. Right, yes. And uh, they should I have been one of the top three winners, I would have been required to go to Las Vegas, which is the headquarters of the Institute, the Bigelow Institute, where I would be given five minutes to present, I think I told you this, to present the work, the essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my idea was not to present it at all. <laughs> right. my idea five minutes. Was, yeah, five minutes. My idea was to say, uh, instead of telling you a story about my essay, I'm going to show you the essay. And I right. would have my, my actor slash director son in LA, Devin. Ah, perform. Yeah, film it. Yeah. Uh, which I think would have been fun to do. Uh, yeah, but who, you know, at that point, who would care? Oh, it would have been awesome. And I mean, it's we, as we know, like Plato's dialogues were at least some of them were performed and, you know, he wrote them for competitions. There was a dialogue writing competition, you know, that I'm sure he won every time he entered. But some of those dialogues well, were meant he to sponsored be. it. So he probably did. Oh, did he? I didn't no, know. I'm <laughs> kidding. I don't he know. He probably did. Honestly. No, no, no. But the point being is that there's it's not it's not uh, completely novel to suggest that a dialogue should be performed instead of just read. Right, know? exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I've been working on this, this dialogue of Plato's dialogue, The Republic, and uh, I don't see why it couldn't at some point ever be put on stage or put on film, because mm -hmm. what we're really talking about is was pioneered at, at the very least by uh wallace sean right. and my dinner with andre yeah of course we've you know that's part of the influence for this podcast yeah i mean that's just it's well yeah i, th I think more one-sided than you and i uh, <laughs> but yeah i think that's the idea that you can take a conversation and you can film it and it will have some cinematic merit yeah i think you should think least... about it yeah, I will. And even if I don't end up doing it that way, or if it's impractical for me to do the dissertation that way, it's definitely something that I would be interested in doing in the future, 
or incorporating in some fashion and also that I might keep in mind as I'm writing, writing it as if it were to be filmed, even if I don't actually manage to bring that side to fruition. So writing the script, so to yeah, speak, writing the script. Know, without yeah. actually filming it. Yeah, but I'm, I do, I'm wondering if there's an... Yeah, I'm wondering, I guess writing it as a film script, not as a stage play, mm. might be easier and better. It is interesting, though, of course, because, you know, Sartre and others wrote plays, right? And it's going to be, because I am explicitly existentialist, uh, my, whatever I write is going to be in the same vein. And so there's a, there's a tradition there as well. Now, I don't know if you're thinking for some technical reasons, it might be easier or harder to write one or the other, because I've never written either a play or uh or you know uh script so yeah well i just know from the from watching my screenwriter son work that the dialogue is the last piece that goes in mm. uh but with stage play the dialogue is is from beginning to end the focus uh yeah, for me writing dialogue is is entertaining and mm. i find it uh, a, a fun way of, of writing, whether it's philosophical or it's something else. I don't know that I've written something that isn't philosophical. Uh, How could you? Even if it's not, it's still going to be. Well, know? it could be, you know, full of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> True, but it, because you're the one writing it, it's still going to, I would imagine, at least in part, have some depth to it or behind it, you know unless you adopt a persona like Kierkegaard, but then it's still philosophical. Yeah, I suppose that's right, even if it's jokes. I, I said the other day to somebody, uh, and I don't know what, the, what you think of this, if you, whether you think this is true, uh, you can't be funny and not be smart. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but then I would add the sort of caveat that there are there are stupid people who are funny, but only to people who are dumber than they are. Can you think of anybody? Yeah, sure. <laughs> like uh, some of like the, you know, the like the three um, stooges. No, I was no, I think actually I think that that the three stooges, not saying they're necessarily highbrow, but I have right. watched a fair amount of them. And I think they present themselves as being dumber than they are. I think actually, I mean, Chaplin would be a higher, Charlie Chaplin would be a higher example of intelligent slapstick, right? But I think the Three Stooges still have some elements of that. If you look at some of their shorts, some of them, yeah. not so much, but. <laughs> I, I, yeah, Chaplin, I wouldn't even put him. Uh, yeah, he, he was marginally slapstick. Yeah, is some of his early, like silent stuff is more so. I think I haven't yeah, but, seen a I mean, ton of his stuff. Yeah, but, but modern times, the Great Dictator, there, there, right. there's some real uh, depth there. And the same thing with Buster Keaton, who was was a uh, almost entirely slapstick. There, there is behind it something ingenious. Exactly. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know that you can be. 
dumb as long as your audience is dumber than you are. So you're, <laughs> so you're, if that's true, then you're smart from their perspective. Exactly. And so I was thinking of like some of the, I can't even remember their names because they're kind of so off-putting to me for more than one reason, but the, there was like that strain of hillbilly comedy that was popular and probably still is popular a couple of years ago, the, the blue collar comedy tour, I think it was called. Um, I don't know if you remember these guys, but yeah. it was almost like they were doing a caricature of a so-called hillbilly, uh, you know, and being someone from uh, Western Pennsylvania, from Appalachia, like uh, it always bothered me uh, in more ways than one, <laughs> but the, I think somebody like Dane Cook could be another example. Um, I don't know if you know him. He was popular when I was like 20. Um, he's, he's not the jackasses guy. No, that's Johnny Knoxville and a couple other guys who, to my knowledge, they've never done stand up. Dane Cook did stand up and was extremely successful insofar as filling stadiums and having a bunch of album sales and things like this. But I can only. I would just, my inclination based on what I've seen of him and seen of his, his audience is that like there's there would be little to no overlap between the people who fill a stadium for Dane Cook and the people who fill a stadium for George Carlin. Uh, I could be wrong there and there might be some overlap, uh, but I just think I, I agree with whatever the claim that you have to be smart to be funny because I think the, I think the sort of, creation of comedy requires a level of intellect the use of irony and things like this that has to be above a certain threshold but i still i still do think that they're in the same way that you know music for example certain types of music is more lowbrow or more highbrow um but the people who like the bad stuff still think it's impressive or whatever it's still better than what they could do that kind of thing. Of course, I'm being I'm unbearably elitist here, but it's yeah. still yeah. my opinion. The highbrow, lowbrow element for me doesn't enter in. Mm. Uh, and it may be because thinking about music, I'm not musical in any way. So anybody writing anything that has a tune <laughs> would be, would be uh, a wonderkin. <laughs> right so something else you said i wonder if you're willing to um, pursue it sure you said i'm an existentialist oh yeah what does oh, that shit. mean, I knew what that that mean for come, you come back to bite me in the ass <laughs> well not yet there's no biting going on I, not yet yeah what does it mean for me i mean some in part it's just been on my mind uh because i was teaching teaching uh sartre and Kamut Camus this week. And I was really driving home to the students, you know, Sartre's sort of famous formulation about existentialism from his essay, What uh, Existentialism is a Humanism, where he talks about existence preceding essence, as opposed to essence preceding existence. So for listeners who might not know, the gist of that, and if you have anything you want to add, Jack, let me know. But the gist is that for the existentialist, the position regarding human nature is that, and, human, and humans generally, is that their existence precedes their essence, which is the opposite of the view held by most people regarding humans and humans and human nature, 
Whereas, so for example, the Christian would believe that essence precedes existence, meaning that there's a creator, God, that has in mind a design and a blueprint and a formula for humans and sort of creates them using his intelligence and material from a certain mold, and then they come into the world. So their essence, what they are, their design precedes their existence. The existentialist view is the opposite of that, that existence precedes essence, that there is no formula in part, at least for Sartre and most existentialists, because there is no God. Existentialists tend to be atheist or atheist adjacent. Um, So there is no formula, there is no design, there is no human nature, except insofar as humans exist and then create themselves established for themselves through their act or acts of living and particularly through the exercise of choice uh, create their essence for themselves so man humans are the creatures that create themselves in that sense so for me that just seems like prima facie true um, but also i like it i like it for a variety of reasons including the focus and emphasis on choice and especially free choice and the way that Sartre at least uses freedom as kind of the master value to justify uh, or at least to sort of support the establishment of certain social conditions. In other words, for me, it dovetails with Marx's claim about the free development of all of each being the condition of the free development of all. Right. So my freedom, my freedom to exercise choice is dependent and significant and perhaps inextricable part on your and others freedom of choice. Okay, so that's Sartre's views in a nutshell, I guess, regarding what existentialism is. I already said I like it and appeals to me. What do I mean by it in addition to that? Um, I don't know. I guess I haven't thought systematically enough about it to really say it would be worth maybe writing down what my sort of conception of existentialism is. Uh, For me, it's sort of just something that I've always felt like I've lived going back uh, through the circumstances of my life and my encounter at a young age with Nietzsche, the sort of godfather of existentialism along with Kierkegaard. You know, I can just remember reading Nietzsche at age 13 or whatever when I stumbled across Thus Spoke Zarathustra and I was just like shit yeah this guy makes sense he actually thinks like me somebody out there has a similar perspective on the world to me not saying I completely understood what he was saying at that point in time but it just resonated with me in a deep sense and was sort of like uh, a recognition that whatever that guy is that's me you know, looking in a mirror, so to speak. So I don't know if that satisfies your question or maybe you have follow-ups, but that's kind of the gist for me. I I don't know that I have follow-ups. I I see the attraction and I see the danger in this idea about radical freedom, radical free choice. Right. Because it's anchorless. There's nothing, there's no ground for you. Your, your choices create the ground. 
in a sense. And so then you have a ground, which I guess you can then dig up or move off of, or I don't know what the metaphors would be right. uh, in this idea about radically free choice or free radical choice. I, I don't know that I buy the Sartrean, is that the <laughs> adjectival form? I think it is. And if it's not, it is now. <laughs> yeah, the Sartrean uh, apothem existence precedes essence. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's either one of those. Mm. Maybe this isn't surprising coming from somebody who is an integralist and, and thinks there are um, elements of truth on both sides. All sides. Uh, but when you have children, and I know this is completely anecdotal, mm. it's impossible from the first day, the <laughs> first hour, not to see something significant about them that is unique. You can just see it. And then as they get older, it becomes more pronounced. There, now, this isn't to say that there is some godlike essence or some religious foundation to this. It's just that there is some hard wiring of personality, not all personality, but aspects of it. So there is, there is an essence here. There is something mm -hmm. that is just fundamental about each person. At the same time, I would not gainsay the notion of choice, that you can make these choices that will uh, inform and alter your life. But, but can they be so fundamental that they change you at that, that deep, hard, almost hardwired level? That I, I don't think so. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, it's both for me, you know, it's both and. It's not, either, it's not either or, it's both and. Um, uh, Kierkegaard weeps. <laughs> Kierkegaard weeps. Um, and Nietzsche, well, let me back up. So I, I was never really uh, a fan of Sartre. Uh, I was much more drawn to Camus. Me too, honestly. And I... Sartre just seems seems stark, and he seems he seems um, without humor. Maybe that's <laughs> not fair, but he seems without humor to me. He seems his personal life, his manner, just doesn't seem. Uh, I was going to say soft enough. That's not that's not quite what I mean. He doesn't seem fully human. <laughs> well, it doesn't appear fully human either. <laughs> no. But the but the tragedy of, in Camus' life, just Camus himself, I, there's just some so much humanity there yes. that I see absent in Sartre. And again, it isn't fair because I haven't read Sartre since I was an undergraduate. Yeah. So it's been a while. I mean, dabbling. I dabbled some. Right. But uh, but Camus. There's just so much humanity there for me. Uh, and I guess if we're using the stranger mm. as emblematic of his, of his philosophy, there is something 
in that that I think is is profoundly necessary for all of us to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And that is, what's the basis on which we make any kind of judgments or choices at all? I mean, it's one thing to say we have the freedom to choose and we can cho- move along and choose certain things, but, but what's the basis by which we choose? And when you read about Merceau and you read about The Stranger, you, you begin to get a sense. I mean, for me, it's the absence of anything that drives him uh, other than feeling in the moment. And that's not enough for me. That's insufficient. Yeah. Right. Ah, now, you know, now I'm, I'm out of my depth here. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I agree. Like, first of all, I would say I'm not like a strict Sartrean existentialist by any means either. And so I don't, I, I was uh, sort of explaining uh, his little slogan for purposes of ensuing conversation and for the sake of our listeners who might not be super acquainted well, with it, existentialism. It, yes, but, it is. It is. If you ask people who are familiar with existentialism to give you the, ironically, the essence of existentialism, <laughs> right. they'll give you that little phrase. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's the touchstone, I think, in many ways. But I would agree with you. And when you were saying what you were saying earlier, you know, about kids and stuff like that, it also reminded me of the discussions you and I have had about a similar claim, um, similarly structured claim by Marx about, uh, how's it go, the uh, men's consciousness, no, the, how's it go, the social conditions of man do not form his consciousness, consciousness, no, I'm getting it backwards, do you yeah, remember? The, right, the material conditions uh, form consciousness, consciousness doesn't form material conditions, or right. inform conditions yeah. okay thank you for rescuing me there and the uh so yeah so structurally that's similar why because they can both be rendered uh, as chiasmus right and it creates this rhetorical it's this rhetorical technique that it creates the appearance of completeness right it's either this or that either existence precedes essence or essence precedes existence in Marx's similar right similar right. structure but but both of us agree, uh, I think, because we're perspectivalists and integralists in this sense, uh, that those that's an illusion. It's illusory to, to believe that all of reality, the terrain of reality is covered by claims like that. It's a very effective rhetorical technique, but it's manipulative in some ways or deceptive or more charitably the result of somebody who, you know, wants to believe in something and is trying to prove it. But I do think, nevertheless, that the claim existence precedes essence is not necessarily defeated by what you were saying about children having, seeming to come into the world with distinct and unique personalities and essence that precedes their existence. And this is, I'm literally just thinking about this off the top of my head, but I wonder if you could make the claim that it's like, it's in those immediate early moments that you were describing through the, through their literal, you know, manifestation that they are coming into being. That's the existence, right? That's the birth of the existence like their literal birth and then their literal first hours and things like this there there's a whole ensemble of i guess subconscious or unconscious 
quote unquote choices being made by the infant in relationship with the parent and other people around them, right? Sartre emphasizes that, that this is interpersonal. Um, but nevertheless, it's like, boom, it's being birthed right there. That's the bloom of, of the essence through existence in those initial moments. Now, I, I mean, I could be totally wrong. I don't have kids. I have some experience with kids, you know, but uh, that's just a thought that occurred to me off the top of my head to try and rehabilitate Sartre's claim in the face of what you, you were saying, which I think has to be answered. If, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but if we're thinking seriously about it, should be addressed. And then one more thing that I wanted to say before I forget is just on the point of Camus. I agree with you, like he's much more, there's something very, um, yeah, just humane in his writing, in his lifestyle, in his, in his face itself, you know, in his whole, everything about him. And also his approach to philosophy, you know, of course he says, I'm not an existentialist. I'm not even a philosopher, he claims. I think he's both of those things, um, but whatever. He is definitely an absurdist, right? And that for me is also probably where I locate myself. I don't have a problem or attention with existentialism and absurdism. I think they're, they're two sides of the same coin. I know it, it led to Sartre and Camus, you know, ending their friendship along with political differences. But um, yeah, for me, absurdity is just an answer. It's the right answer to the existential problem. The, the, the meaning and the, and the person that we should create for ourselves in the face of empty and empty universe is the absurd, you know, the absurd uh, worldview and the absurd personality. What Jonathan Lear calls similarly, I think, the ironic existence, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I'm very inspired by both of these guys and uh, and absurdism. The absurdist outlook is is absolutely how I live my daily life, probably above all else. And I was influenced by that in part also by a book, very obscure book, which you may know because it's old. <laughs> and I think it was popular in your heyday. Uh, I don't know how old it is, honestly, but it, uh, the, the Principia Discordia. Have you ever heard of that? Seems to me I have. Who wrote it? I, it's, I think it's written anonymously. It's kind of a, it's, no, a, it's an absurdist. It's kind of reminiscent of Ram Dass's Be Here Now. It's like a handwritten book pamphlet with diagrams and whatever, but it's just in a, it's a collection of ab absurdist statements and images. Um, but I think it was written in the seventies, but I'll send you a link for it. And if anybody listening happens to know of that book, contact me because we need to talk about it. Cause I have yet to meet anyone <laughs> that really knows about it, but I just wanted to mention it because it came to mind. And that for me was something I was exposed to when I was like 14 or something and influenced me as well. This absurdist perspective. I wish I could remember some quotes from it might help me make my point, but. Can you say more about what you mean by absurdist? Mm. Well, yes. Uh, you know, for a Camus, it's the, it's the sort of, he calls it the disconnect or the divorce between the actor and his setting. Um, 
and elsewhere i'm drawing this from the myth of sisyphus and then elsewhere in that book he describes it as being the sort of friction or the tension between a meaningless universe that is inherently meaningless and can never be anything but meaningless cannot offer meaning from itself and humans who are almost pathologically certainly sort of intrinsically driven to seek or perhaps to make meaning from the universe certainly to seek it and so it's this impossible scenario where humans are seeking meaning from something that can't give it to them and so Camus says that it's in that friction it's in that tension that the absurd resides it's not just that the universe is meaningless it's not just that humans are seeking meaning it's this very distinct sort of struggle to find meaning in a meaningless universe so then self-consciously realizing that that that's the case is my understanding of where the absurd enters in. It's that recognition. It's that recognition that we live in a meaningless universe and yet we desperately seek meaning. And so we're caught in an absurd predicament and everything follows from that. That's my understanding of Camus take on the absurd. And I think I tend to agree for me though, I would, I really emphasize like I sort of the irony of the situation and especially what we could call ironic detachment or even post-ironic detachment, the ability as sort of Kierkegaard hints at in either or to step outside of your life and view your own life from a almost cosmic distance as if it's a character in a play that's unfolding before your eyes, right? And so you can have very different um, attitudes or responses, especially to say suffering, right? It could be not be suffering. It could be amusing, perhaps, for example. So for me, that's kind of, that's a significant part. And I'm sure that's drawn out of my own personal history, right? As a coping mechanism, basically, <laughs> uh, to my own uh, biography and childhood. Uh, and I would say that this is something that is very similar for comedy, at least real comedy, uh, the ironic perspective. But then also outside of myself, the where this is sort of fun on a daily basis or serves the purpose of helping one to survive in the world is to maintain and recognize that absurdity in the face of other people's behaviors who are not aware of the absurd, right? So what, you can imagine any number of sort of Kafka-esque situations where people are uh, divorced from reality and making certain demands or saying certain things. And, and from the, your sort of absurd perspective, you recognize the humor in what they're demanding. I saw, I could give you a really grim example that I saw today there was this police shooting in Tucson, right? You may have heard about this. The wheelchair, yeah. the man in the wheelchair yeah. that was executed. Guy trying by, to get into Lowe's. Yeah. And, you know, evidently had a knife, whatever, but the guy's, a, you know, handicapped in a wheelchair. And there's a cop there. Um, you know, he should have been able to handle it in a sane world. Anyway, I was watching this. I, I don't watch many of these police killing videos anymore, but sometimes I, 
I feel like I need to remind myself. And uh, so I was watching that and there's this uh, angle from inside the store where the cop after shooting the guy, he falls on the ground and the cop starts trying to handcuff him and he's struggling to handcuff him and he's like flipping the body and it's taking seconds and seconds and so long. And it's just like from, from a certain perspective, not necessarily endorsing this, but from a certain absurd and darkly ironic perspective, there's a humor in witnessing this fucking cop who just literally, apparently without any awareness, has just executed this man and then is going through the motions of handcuffing his corpse and struggling to do so. Like it, it was just, it was surreal to me to witness that. But that's just one, that's a very extreme example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, a way of, yeah, coping mechanism for suffering is, is an important element of it for me. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're welcome. <laughs> that was uh, that was absurd. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is you asked, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, but thank you for for uh, explaining that, explaining how you see it. Uh, my I've dogs apparently. My dogs are in agreement. <laughs> Yeah, the hounds of Baskerville are coming to hunt me for my. They, uh... they uh, no, no, they're they're laughing at the absurdity of it all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I see, I see the 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 appeal and the power of existentialism. Uh, I I don't. Yeah, I guess I, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I mean, the freedom of radical choice in living your life has tremendous appeal. Uh, and I think it's the way where I link, say, Nietzsche and Camus is through this idea about creative destruction. Yeah. Uh, because the first reaction is to say, you know, Nietzsche is destroying everything, destroying all the idols, destroying all of our norms, destroying everything that we think is valuable in society. When all he's saying is, well, you have to clear out the detritus before you can begin to build something that you think is noble. Right. Uh, and I see Camus doing something very similar in, in his literature, which, by the way, won him the Nobel Prize, which he accepted. Yeah. Um, but again, I come back, I come back to this idea about essence and existence. I just don't see that it gets us very far. Mm. to to put them at opposite poles i don't i don't know that that's uh how beneficial that is how that works and it's the same thing i have with this idea about uh a meaningless universe versus man's search for meaning or the or human's search for meaning as if mm. there are two two poles I mean, I, why would we expect the universe to provide meaning? <laughs> where does that, where does that idea come from? What, what would that look like? And it, it, we know where it comes from. It comes back to what you were saying earlier about existence. The right. existence is is an ex, essence. Is sorry, it comes back to what you said about essence. That essence is an expression of 
of God within you. It's the, your soul. Mm. Uh, and, and that, and so you should get in touch with your, your, with your soul. Uh, and you do that through faith and you do that through accepting of Christ or Krishna or Buddha <laughs> or whatever it's going to be, right? You're wrestling with that, the perfect life versus your life, right? The embodiment of, of all that's good and your creature-like, disgusting, horrible inclinations, proclivities. So you're wrestling constantly with this idea. Uh, okay, that, all of that seems absurd to me. Um, but the search for meaning seems to me to be nothing but worthwhile. Mm. In other words, you wouldn't look to the universe to provide meaning and therefore say, because the universe is meaningless, everything is meaningless. Even what I create is meaningless. Well, n n no. <laughs> right. I, mean, I wouldn't say that either. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, it, I guess what I'm saying is, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. To exercise whatever brain wattage I have remaining, <laughs> on the periphery, on the edges, right on the extremes. I don't. I don't know how that does us any good. Uh, so this essence existence debate uh you know where 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 does this really get us <laughs> I, it gets us it gets us to a philosophy or justification for radical freedom right for the yeah. idea about about choice uh and that makes sense but but then it seems to me then you say what are you saying there are no boundaries to choice are there no boundaries at all to what you can choose and how you can be and this we get then back to merceau mm -hmm. and the stranger and for how, sure yeah okay. uh, but it also brings me back to marx <laughs> and this idea about the material conditions of life form consciousness or establish consciousness it's not the other way around which just strikes me as again just what you were saying rory it's a general statement that doesn't really have any any meaning right. it doesn't it doesn't carry any doesn't have any weight for me I understand, I understand the impetus behind that. The impetus behind that is to say the material conditions of people's lives are, are fundamental to how they're going to live. And I think this is probably something that comes out of every uh, vanguard movement, revolutionary movement, every um, movement in opposition to what they see as the material conditions in people's lives. And as you were saying, the, and the suffering that ensues from that, when, when it seems perfectly plausible to me that you can alter that in an instant. Mm. So whether it's Rosa Luxemburg or it's uh, Prudhomme or it's you know, anarchists or socialists, they seem to say this pretty much the same thing. And I think Chomsky says something like this too, which is to say, Establish the material conditions, and then you'll worry about freedom. Right. Right. This is the apothem I often use, and I'm thinking about making the title of a book, which is the, from, comes from the socialists, which is freedom begins after breakfast. Right. right. And that's not that's not the leisurely bourgeois breakfast when you're reading the paper and having your fried eggs, and then you get up from the table and off you go. No, it's the it's the breakfast where you have to you have to meet your basic need of sustenance before you begin to worry about what you will do with your day 
It's not, can I survive this day? Mm -hmm. It's what, that's the first question. It's then what, now what do I do with the day now that I've had breakfast? So, like that's, that. so that's where I am in this. So when Mark says, um, yes, material conditions is, form our consciousness or whatever, however he phrases it, <laughs> I, I, I see why he says it. But he himself must know that that's false because he's writing a philosophy that has nothing to do with material conditions, <laughs> right? Which is about, which is to generate a revolutionary movement to topple capitalism, to move to the next stage of history. Right. Although his, his analysis is, is focused right on material conditions, no, it, but no, he's philosophizing, yeah. right? No, he's yeah, creating I'm ideas. Yeah, I'm yeah. agreeing there, but he's generating the ideas that will lead to the next movement and right, the change right. of material conditions. They're yeah, that is the, the material conditions themselves, right? Yeah. So in, in his view of, of utopia, his view of communism in the Marxist, the true Marxist sense, it will be technology that allows us the freedom to fish in the morning, hunt in the right. afternoon, write poetry in the evening. Right? Yep. It's technology will, that will do that. But technology itself doesn't come out of uh, the material conditions. It comes out of somebody observing those conditions and saying, you know, there's a better way to do X. Mm. Right? And that comes out of people's consciousness. It doesn't come out of the material <laughs> conditions themselves. That's like saying the universe has meaning. Right. You, you can't expect the material conditions to generate the ideas any more than you can expect the universe to generate them. Right, so, it's got to be a dialectical interaction. It's, right, it's yeah. definitely dialectical interaction. But for me, I wrote about this in Wide Is the World. It mm. comes back to this idea that the idea is born of something coming out of material conditions, coming out of the the established institutions in a society, coming out of the values that a culture holds, coming out of your own individual experience. All of that comes together to generate some spark in your head. Mm or in your mind that creates some idea that then leads to some revolutionary change. Yeah, so it's an interaction, right? It's an interaction yeah. of all those effects. And can you trace back what exactly it is? Can you separate them out and say, the causal connection, the essential connection was here? No, you can't, no. right? You can't do that. Um, yeah, so I don't know where we are in this conversation, but- <laughs> I was just listening but, to you go on your little rant there. But that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was it's good. Ranting, it's um, there. Uh, but it, I guess th this is the lesson for me. Well, you know, you know that what, what generated my thinking about existentialism at all. Mm. Animal, animal <laughs> loose in here. What generated it was really the the myth of Sisyphus, which you referenced earlier in the conversation. Yeah, and in that course. essay, as you also know, he concludes by saying that Sisyphus is happy. Right. One must imagine the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Okay. If, if, you, if listeners don't know the myth of Sisyphus, Sisyphus was condemned by the gods to the endless task of rolling a boulder up the side of a mountain. And when he got close to the pinnacle, it would roll back down to the beginning. And he would do this endlessly, ceaselessly. Right. No purpose, no end. No. And yet we must imagine Sisyphus is happy. And the, the question is how, how on earth could he be happy doing this? And that of course generated for me an entire chapter in Stalking White Crows on this idea. That's the happy existentialists the chapter. Happy, yeah, chapter happy existentialists. Yeah. Uh, 
because I can see it, but I cannot see it from within existential philosophy. Mm. I think that how maybe you don't see how Sisyphus could be happy from within existentialist philosophy, basically. No, so, no. well, yeah. I, I can see how Camus, I can see how Camus gets there. Mm. But I don't see because the the for him there's this shift into the wisdom of the body, mm-hmm. and, then, and I apologize. This may be my reconstruction of of Camus, and so I apologize to you and to him. <laughs> uh, it's this shift into the wisdom of the body, and if you see the wisdom that the body itself has wisdom, then the then the functions and actions of the body itself both express and grow into wisdom. Mm. His and and uh, Camus has this wonderful line, something about about Sisyphus digging his feet into the earth and and tactilely feeling feeling the boulder, and how yeah. meaningful that is because we're dealing with the wisdom of the body, and so it doesn't matter what the body is doing as long as the body is doing. Right, sort of being in your body, feeling the strength in his arms as he pushes the boulder and the feel of the stone against yeah. his fingertips. And these types of things. Yes. And, yeah. And, and all of that it translates into this idea about meaning, mm-hmm. fulfillment, uh, happiness. So it's irrelevant whether he's pushing the boulder or the boulder's rolling down the hill and he's starting over. It's irrelevant what he's doing at all. Right. The fact that what the, what is important is that he is alive. That's that my he, understanding as well. Lives. That's yeah. that's my understanding as well. I don't. I, I'm. I. I want to come back to this. I don't see yep. why that doesn't, why, because you were saying you don't see how you can be happy within existentialist philosophy. Isn't that, didn't you just explain? Well, no, well, what I think I was explaining <laughs> was Camus. So oh, for, okay. for Camus, it doesn't matter what you do. Mm. There is no, there is no scale of valuation. It is simply oh, yeah. that you live. Yeah. More living so, is better living. Exactly. Says. The yeah. more you live, the better. So you can, you can, murder a stranger on the beach you can uh sit stoically at your mother's funeral none of it makes any difference the mere fact is that you're there and you're sensing you're feeling you're living you're alive Mm -hmm. so that means there is a scale the scale is living and dead right right there's that's the scale yeah uh, I don't know that you can escape valuation because it would seem that maybe mm. he would say being dead is, is the cessation of living. Therefore it can't be as good. I don't know what he say that or what he say. And this is the, you know, the, what they attribute to Camus all the time. The great existential question is why should I continue living? Right. Why not, the, why not commit suicide? The only truly serious philosophical problem is the, is that of suicide. That's how he opens uh, Sisyphus. Yeah. Right? Well, if the answer is because suicide means you no longer live, and living is what is important, there's something important. <laughs> okay. So now we're now we're rest. Now we've come to identify that there is a, a scale of valuation, and now we're just evaluating what's on it. Right. For me, it isn't sufficient. Okay. Because I think that we are meaning creating creatures Mm. and that we find it's not just being alive, although maybe you could make an argument that that is sufficient meaning for Camus. I I don't know. 
but maybe he wouldn't even want to say it that way. Maybe you wouldn't want to say it that way. But for me, that's insufficient. There are more yeah. values to look at. And just the, the last word on this. In the chapter, Happy Existentialists, I looked at the, the cessation of time. Because the cessation of time means that there, we are just living in this moment. We, what do we know in this moment? We know we are living. That's all that's important. And the way we know that is, is through the wisdom of the body, through what we're feeling and doing and the action. Okay. The importance is the moment. And this comes to the, your Kierkegaardian perspective, which is to say, when you're in that moment of now, there is no you to be in the moment. There's just that moment. You have disappeared when you're fully in the moment. So it isn't as if you are a character outside of the character of you, observing the character of you doing something. Mm. It isn't that at all. It's that you are, you, you recognize in that moment that there isn't any you to be a character of. <laughs> there isn't anything that you are separate from and therefore anything is, is you and everything is you at that moment. So yes, you can, you don't cease to observe, but that's all you're doing is witnessing what is happening to you as if you are someone else because you are not you. Right, all, right, all, right. all this unfolds in that moment. And in that moment, this is like, this is like the Sisyphean sense of being uh, alive. I just imagine when the boulder rolls back down the hill, there's a moment when you're not, you physically are living, but you're, you're not touching anything. There's no action. You're just standing, watching the boulder roll down the hill. How can that be as fulfilling then as pushing the boulder up the hill? Mm. Because from the perspective I'm developing, since there is nothing but the moment, it doesn't matter what's going on in the moment. The moment is just as rich if nothing is happening, as if everything is happening. Okay. Right. Final thought here. <laughs> final, final thought. Postscript how, to the final thought. How does that translate into meaning? Because if every moment is empty of anything, mm. but every moment simultaneously is completely full because there's nothing absent, because there's no thing to be absent from it, Mm. then where do you find meaning? Well, meaning is only found when you step back from that. And you say, what was that about? Mm. So uh, meaning for your sake, saying meaning occurs out after the moment or uh, upon yeah. reflection. Yeah. When the, when, yes, because. And this, this, this now <laughs> involves uh, sort of meditative insights, which may or may not have any, bearing on anyone listening to this well, they have bearing but, for you that's all that matters yeah yeah that's right it's my, <laughs> it's my bullshit let me get on with exactly it. Uh, so you only there are people who live only in the moment there are people for whom there is no separation between anything that we observe because everything we observe is both fully us and not at all us uh, we are the ground in which things arise. Okay. Can you live fully in that? 
apparently there are people who do. I don't see how it can happen um, because we are still humans with limitations, physiological limitations, biological limitations required to live in this world. And so for me, there is this period of integrating what you are experiencing in with this daily living. And so you have to kind of step down from that moment. Uh, and that's the, that's the root of meaning for me. That's where, that's where things are meaningful. What does this mean? How does this affect my life? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so well, all I can tell you right now is that we are, or I am, at least at this moment, completely living up to the title bullshit artist. <laughs> the bullshit is flowing fast I and furious. Am, I, yeah, that no. was full flow. There's the only the only concern for me is like in order to provide the proper countercurrent of bullshit, uh, I need about an hour. I don't know if we have it, but I do. I, I really don't know how much time or where we're at. We'll probably wrap things up here in a minute, but I want to, of course, respond to some of what you yeah, have been spewing do. there. I mean, oh, some of the things you were saying. So, like, of course, that that sort of question or mystery of the non dual, I guess, the non dual existence that you were talking about there at the end. It's like, I wonder, because you were saying, like, how can you do that or whatever? And I wonder, first of all, as we both know, and people who are familiar with this kind of stuff know, like a lot of those, quote unquote, higher ways of being or whatever are ineffable, right? Like that by, by their nature, it's kind of hard to or impossible to put into words. So I wonder yeah. if, you know, like Ken talks about the transrational and things like that. It's, you know, it's, if it's just something that speech is not going to suffice for, but then the question becomes, you know, can we talk around it or a gesture towards it or whatever? And I was thinking about like, it's kind of in the same way, like, in strictly psychological development, when we're thinking about like the move from sort of being captured by your ego to moving beyond your ego. Well, the ego doesn't really disappear, right? My understanding. It's just that you're no longer captured by it. It's so some, as Keegan says, it's something you have instead of something that you're had by. And so your relationship to it is what changes. And I, I, and therefore, the way that it's almost, how do I put it? Like the way that the way that it functions also changes so that if we carry that through to the level of the whole self or whatever, where you sort of dissolve and from within the confines of your who says that Alan Watts, your skin bound self, something, somebody like that. Um, then I wonder if, for example, you're not really exerting, you're not really, you're not really using your will, so to speak, to control yourself in the same way when you're operating or not operating maybe is the better way of putting it at that level. Does that make sense? Cause you were talking about like, of course, also like observation here is important too. So if, if it's the case that you're, 
you sort of exit the confines of your bodily self and merge into what you always already were, which is everything, then yourself just becomes one more particle in the stream. Right? So does that mean then you just flow autonomously? It's like what, you know, you, it's like you black box your own self and it's just boom, you're off in the river. You know, uh, I don't know. I'm just bullshitting back at you. you No, it's a good question. For me, I I, want to come onto something you said, which, which uh, rings true. And that is the ego becomes something you have, not something you are. Right. So it, it doesn't change. I mean, this is the thing that I, that I find fascinating. In those moments, I, I tried to describe a couple of them in Stalking White Crows. When I have been in that flow state, when I, when I, the ego, I, the self completely disappear, I'm not there. Things are happening. Right. But I'm You're not in the mix. doing them. Yeah, right. they, whoever they're happening, and uh, the person I am is doing them, but I'm not that person. Mm. Okay, so in those moments, it doesn't matter what's going on. This observing witness is witness to whatever arises. So there isn't a governor that says, don't do that, do this. It's perfectly happy in this flow state, mm. this, this sense of witnessing. It, it, but it's not happy. I shouldn't give it attributes <laughs> because that wasn't my experience. I'm not sure it makes any sense. Again, I come back to this, what you said, this ineffability of all this, right. of all these phenomena. Um, but the witness is simply witness to what is arising and what is occurring. It isn't making any judgment. It isn't, it isn't issuing any, any governor in any way to stop doing this or do more of this. Nevertheless, there's, there is a residue. This, this, again, this is just from my experience. There is a residue that, that informs the way you observe yourself once you're out of that experience, that now moment, that witnessing moment which has some effect on how you operate in the world. Mm. But for those people who live this, according to their accounts, 100% of the time, I I don't know how much of of that experience, how much of that new life uh, has on their their existential being. I, I, I just don't know, but I'm just saying for me, it's the residue. So you, you, you mean something like, if we want to put it maybe more crudely, but perhaps more comprehensively, like the data that you collect when you're in this witness or flow state, you bring that back with you as information that is influential in, in your ordinary state, changes who you are, perhaps. Yes, but it isn't anything you do consciously. Mm-hmm. It just, it seems to me it's, it, it's something, it, again, I use the term residue. There's both a residue from the experience and a residue within your life. It just seems to be, things look different. Yeah. You, you may act differently. It's not unlike after a, you know, mushroom or LSD no, trip. It, it, you know. it, very much so. I mean, yes, yeah. all dyslexia is light, right. And we're cleansing the doors of perception. Right. And we're beginning to see reality 
as it is when we remove some of the filters. Right. Yes, you bring you bring some of that experience back with you. And it isn't that you, it just seems to be almost a natural outcome of the experience you've had, that you, right. you can see things differently and maybe act differently. And perhaps over time that fades. And this is the thing, I, I'm gonna make this statement. I have no idea whether it's, it's a generalization <laughs> that will hold, but it seems to me that the difference between a meditative meditative insight and a psychedelic insight is that the meditative insight is, um, how do I say this? I was going to say it's repeatable. And then so you could say, well, yes, you can take mushrooms again, but you cannot, you cannot direct what the experience will be. You can try to create a set and setting that is going to be uh, conducive to certain kinds of experiences, but you can't say that experience will come. Mm -hmm. With a meditative state, there seems to be a building on that which you've already achieved. And these are these are terrible terms. I'm not saying meditation is a way of achieving. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's really but... a way of stripping. It's really a way of stripping things away. Right. Uh, but it seems to have, uh, <laughs> say it again, a, a residual effect that, that builds, that grows. So it's not... Um, I haven't done psychedelics enough or recently to say this. You you have, so you I might probably have. Say this. Yeah. <laughs> Can you build on what you bring from the experience? Mm -hmm. Does the experience begin to fade, or does it, or can it become stronger? Because with meditation, it doesn't fade. In my experience, it gets stronger. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know. Is that a difference, or is that just because I'm not familiar enough with the psychedelic experience? I don't know. I think. I mean, I think I would say that it it varies, basically. It would depend, in the case of psychedelics, I think it would depend on your intentionality, your approach, um, and also sort of who you are as a person and how sort of what you expect from the process. So, for example, if I'm dropping acid and going to a party and for the, you know, in, with the intent of just dancing and or whatever, like my the the residue from that is likely to be quite different i think than if i take it at home and i'm journaling you know and and crying or whatever you know yeah. working yeah. through trauma or something like that or taking a therapeutic setting with a, a psychologist who's helping you to process things like that um so but i would say i think i think i completely agree with you that first of all the residue exists and can be, uh, you know, used to great effect. It just depends, you know, yeah, again, on how you use it, how you approach it, what you, what you want to do with it. I do think even somebody who takes psychedelics and goes to a party and isn't thinking about it or really has much intentionality behind it other than to have fun, I think at a, at an, a more, at like a lower but more fundamental level, they may walk away from that in the, in the days or weeks following with some sort of afterglow that is very positive, but, you know, very generalized and nondescript, right? They just, they feel better or something because they had such an elevated yeah. experience. Yeah. Whereas the flip side could be, you could have a much more sort of sophisticated and deeper and higher experience and carry that residue with you. And my, my hunch would be that the latter is more lasting and I think that that's probably the case for serious meditation as well, yeah. because it's done with intentionality and, and deliberateness and, and those types of things.
one of the best translations and interpretations of the Gita I've read is by Maharishi Mahajogi. And in there, he talks about meditation as a form of diving into the unbounded, unmanifest realm of being. Mm. And meditation is a dive down and then you come out into the relative world and you dive into the mm. infinite and you come out into the relative world. And he said, it's like um, dying a cloth. And I think, in fact, Plato, I think, has this has the same image. Oh, in the Republic? Or because I don't remember. Yeah, I but... can't remember where. I don't think it's the Republic. Okay. But the more the more you dip the cloth into the dye and, and bake it in the sun, uh, the deeper the colors set and the richer the colors become. Mm. And that's the same analogy with this idea about diving into the infinite. Eventually, it becomes it becomes uh, completely enriching of your relative life. So at some point, the uh, boundary become relative and infinite begins to dissolve. Well, yeah, so, and I would just say probably the dive itself, right? This idea that you're even diving at all. You're, there is no dive, right? You're there will be no dive. Well, right, because, that, yeah. yeah once, you, once you get- There is no dive and there is no you. <laughs> right, this is there, similar to what you referenced that- thing that aphorism from Nietzsche with the boat right there right. is no boat <laughs> there is no boat right yeah um yeah in fact the dedication was to my students right the dedication of the book was to my students and I said here's a lesson I never taught Jump life out. is an open <laughs> life is an open ocean dive out of your boat uh yeah all right I don't know where we are oh well, you were saying about the dyeing the color and diving into the ocean, bringing that into the relative, back into the relative. Um, but maybe you concluded that point. But uh, yeah, there was something else I wanted to say. Well, you were talking about, you're talking about the sort of the afterglow. Oh, yeah. And but that's, I yeah, yes, I think oh, that that's, uh, I think you're right. I think you were talking about the difference between taking psychedelics and meditation. Um, yes, I, I'm, I'm also struck by, another area of, of research interest of mine, which is the afterlife studies, but people who mm. have had near-death experiences come away with such profound experience that they alter their lives dramatically. They may give up jobs and, and do something completely different. Often it leads to, although this isn't really talked about that much within the afterlife circles, marriages may dissolve because you have a new person here. Right. And it's so they yeah, exactly. So there are these stages. I think that that can occur with psychedelics. I think that can occur with afterlife experiences. I think that can occur with meditation, mm. where uh, these experiences uh, inform your sense of being in ways that alter who you are. Right. And that can, and and deep, can like be super deep ways that aren't just, uh, you know, it's not just. Uh, something that can be worked through or whatever. It's like you genuinely have transformed. You yeah, know? but it, but but it, this comes back to our point about, at least for me, the existentialists. Mm. You need to work through them. You mm. need to figure out how to integrate those into daily living. No matter how uh, maybe dark or how, how glorious they might be, you have, you have to somehow come to terms with it. Because you can continue to exist in this body. I mean, even that's why I come back to this point. It's, it's remarkable to me that people who have completely transformed to the sense that they are now living in a, a non-dual existence, mm. where there are no boundaries between anything, 
because there is no thing. They have to function. They have they, they're out in traffic. <laughs> there are car, cars and humans and there, there's food to prepare. There are things that have to be done. And how, how does that work? And the only way I can explain it is that you are no longer driving yourself. Yeah. You are driven. You, you are things, you are doing things. Uh, and I guess you're on like a, some you know, automatic pilot, right? Your autonomic nervous system is taking over. <laughs> I, I don't know how you function, but uh, function you do. Yeah, it's interesting that that I, I wanted to say at least one more thing on that point, because you were I was been thinking about this for a few minutes when you were talking about getting into the flow state. And I had this thought about basically the, the sort of sense or experience by which you recognize this, this what I'm going to call the fiction of the puppeteer, right? The idea that you are the puppeteer of yourself you're the controller of yourself right that's when you separate from that when you're in the flow state i think you have the opportunity and maybe it takes many multiple instances of this maybe it only takes one you know who knows it probably varies from person to person but you have the opportunity there to really like understand and recognize that fiction for what it is and then you can't go back to it you can't enter back into it right it, it's been disenchanted in some mm. sense right yeah and it's broken but but not broken it has a negative connotation but you know what i mean like um and so then for me also like the, why that kind of resonates with me is in part because there is an opportunity there also, I think, to recognize the absurdity of the fiction, right? And then to perhaps get to a point where you can play with it. So if you, if you recognize that and you've separated from it and you're outside of it and you see it at a distance, much like the people in the near-death experiences have these out-of-body uh, you know, perceptions and everything, then what's, what, what do you think is really happening what are you doing, you know, in the, as you're doing it, what is your body, who are you or whatever. And it's like, maybe, maybe we're thinking about it in this conversation, not necessarily from the wrong angle, but perhaps there's another angle that could be helpful, which is thinking at the super microscopic level, right? Suddenly now, if we're not what we ordinarily take ourselves to be, a mind and a body and a will and these types of things, well, then we're just a collection of atoms. We're just a collection of quarks and things flickering in and out of existence and being affected by gravity and one another being drawn into certain activities and pulled away from others, et cetera, et cetera. Why would that, why would him, why would a human be any different in that case than a river or a tree or a star or whatever? Right? So it, it makes total sense that our body our what we ordinarily take to be ourself just keeps floating through the cosmic dance like anything else while we have this experience of recognizing that when we take ourselves to be anything other than that it's a fiction it's an illusion and it's not ultimately something that we can enter back into 
And I wonder then also if that connected to your final point, if that is coherent or makes any sense at all, then I wonder if for people who are having a sort of a permanent non-dual existence, if for them, they sort of have that return to themselves without actually returning to themselves where it's just, they're just resting in that awareness and they become more comfortable with it. Right. It's not, it's no longer a novel experience and maybe they, maybe they even forget that it's not how it used to be. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Like, you mean they, they can't remember how it used to be. Right. Because it's just their normal now. And maybe it's like in experiencing this and seeing the truth of it, it's like that, in an instant their their memory or their mem- their their previous life sort of snaps into this this different recollection or form you know where that it always was that i don't know now i'm rambling there is a fear <laughs> that people often hold and express about moving into a space or developing non-dual awareness that they will cease to be, that they will lose attachments to loved ones or to work that they have found purposeful Mm. uh, and that they will become, no longer become a person. They will simply be one drop in the ocean of awareness unboundedness now there is an experience like that when you recognize that there is no boundary there is no you there is just what is but i recall and i use this in the happy existentialist chapter a statement by uh, a spiritual teacher gangaji who says something like this, you have that experience of unboundedness when you are nothing but that unboundedness. Your individuality increases. And this comes back to what you said about the ineffability. It's paradoxical, you cannot express the experience that she's talking about in language because our language is is created to bind to Mm -hmm. limit and so we can't say anything about it that makes any sense unless we talk in parable or we talk in paradox right so yeah so how can you dissolve into the ocean of bliss and unboundedness and yet your individuality intensifies how how, i don't know (laughs) But I believe her. <laughs> Why would I believe her? Because uh, if you ever, if you read what she's written and you watch her, there's something, there's something happening there. There's something there. Uh, this reminds me of a story um, of a man named Brother Francis, who was a Franciscan monk, maybe. Um, he's still around. But he was uh, at a very open uh, monastery, very much like 
uh, I guess, what was um, Thomas Merton? Was he a Franciscan? I think he was Franciscan. I don't remember. But Merton you know, had influences from Zen Buddhism and from Hinduism and yoga and all kinds of places. And Brother Francis had the same experience. Well, one day during, I think it was during communion, uh, he said he just disappeared. He just dissolved. He was gone hmm. and never came back. There was no Brother Francis. And he was both elated and freaked out. You know, what's happened? What, how do I process this? What, what, what is going on? Who's processing it? What's what, <laughs> you know? Uh, he went to a conference, I think a non-dual science and non-duality or one of those conferences. And he came into a room and he had been told by somebody said, oh, there's somebody you ought to meet. And he walked into this room and he looked across the room and he saw this, a, a person. And he looked in that person's eyes and that person looked at him and they both recognized that they were exactly in the same place. Mm. They could see it. Nobody else could see it. They could see it. And that was the person he was supposed to meet. Right. So, so there is something that he was still a person walking around, eating food and sleeping and doing things, but there was something different. And that difference was manifest because people who also had, were, who, who were something different could see it. Anyway, um, I think you can see that in Gangaji. There's something just different. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, I think that is true as well. And it doesn't surprise me that it had to do with sort of a twinkle in the eye. Um, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, you know the story of, of Eckhart Tolle. You know which one the, <laughs> yeah the i know power of now yeah talking about how he 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 came to live in the now and, and everything else dissolved mm. uh and he it happened when he went to bed he asked this the same question i i can't stand me <laughs> and he suddenly realized there's a distinction between i and me what and he but poof right uh everything fell away. There was just nothing but unbounded awareness. And he went to bed and he woke up and it was the same thing. And so kind of to, I don't want to say process it, but, or come to grips with it, but he used to go down to a park bench by the Blake. Do you remember this story? I don't think so. No. And I, people would be, would just be grab would gravitate toward him. Oh yeah. And say, uh, you know, in essence, I want what you've got. They <laughs> could recognize there was something there. He wasn't sure what, what he had what it was but people just know you can just there's something there yeah you you sort of create a space around yourself i think i think you can do that in it doesn't have to be at this in this certain level right but uh the magnetism that comes or can come from uh, sort of a presentation of self, I think or, is or non-self. It's powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In his case, not self. Non-self. Yeah. But something that, yeah, catches people's eyes for reasons that they can't necessarily explain. Uh, you know, maybe one more vulgar form of this would be something like charisma, right? But uh, that I think is not quite what was happening with him. But 
you know, people would balk, many people would balk at these kinds of things like, oh, he, he recognized him by looking at him across the room, you know, woo woo type bullshit. And uh, it's just, it, that's one facet of this that I always find interesting is that how do you sort of solve that problem? You know, I'm less interested. I'm interested in this topic as well, of course. You know, what is it like? What's the phenomenology of non-dualism and how do you get there and all that? But I'm more interested in sort of how do we have an education for non-dualism, even if we know we're going to fall far short. This is what you're interested in too, yeah. really, I think, yeah. you know. Well, but this is, yeah, 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 right. Because it's just so frustrating that we can't even have this type of conversation in the mainstream, you know, or amongst ordinary people because the gap is so wide or the blinders are so tight or, you know, whatever. So then it also kind of, it's interesting. I wonder if the extent to which people were drawn to Eckhart Tolle in that circumstance has something to do with how relatively close they were themselves to reaching that do you know what i mean like yeah. if they were completely yeah. asleep they'd walk right past him yeah i think and it just raises an interesting question for me about the again hearkening back to some a disconnected topic from the earlier in the conversation about the fish hook. How do you reel people in to a philosophical conversation or to being intrigued by a different way of being? Well, I think it's uh, reeling them in is the same or a similar process to education that you, you start, as Rousseau said, by taking people where they are. Mm. and you just you know that that requires careful listening and uh, to see where people are and then you introduce uh, what you think might be mutually beneficial or interesting ideas perceptions and maybe you don't I don't know how you can aim for the non-dual. I don't know if that's even possible to do. Mm. We have some sense of, of steps that you might undertake without any guarantees, of course. But all the things we've talked about, um, the introduction of psychedelics in a ritual setting uh, would be important for opening people. It's all, you know, it's all about trying to get, the, get beyond the filters and the boundaries, right? right? Clean the doors of perception. Right. Um, and how do you do that right how do you do it intellectually how do you do it psychologically emotionally uh yeah i think that's that's what we're really talking about how, how do you do it in a systematic way with people that would be called some system of education um how you do it as an individual you find ways that appeal to you i mean for you it might be instead of meditation you might be much more drawn to to psychedelic sequences Mm. for example i mean maybe people instead of wanting to sit and meditate they they want to move they want to do they want to do some kind of dance like sufi dancing or chanting or who, who knows you know drumming right. right it doesn't really matter what it is 
but it's always a way of transcending where we are now into some next step. Often I think they're higher because they can integrate what, what is below. And sometimes they're just lateral. Or maybe sometimes they're regressive. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. It's just putting all the pieces together, I guess, that I find challenging and intriguing and interesting. And I also, like, given what we've been talking about, just the, the focus on the person themselves is something that I'm thinking about now and have, have been thinking about before, but also it's like, if we carry through some of my half-baked ideas about um, sort of the quantum element of non-dualism, which are half-baked in my articulation, but I think the material is there to fully bake them. We know about the connections between you know, physics and consciousness and the interest by famous physicists in consciousness. So it's there, but I, I guess I'm just thinking like if consciousness is, a, is, is or can be at least in some sense thought of as something like a fundamental force in the universe like gravity, then could the could the consciousness of a non-dual person or even somebody who's not necessarily that highly developed but is higher developed than the norm than what can cause the center of gravity could that person just simply by being themselves as you were saying Eckhart was doing just by being themselves fully in that moment be sort of drawing towards them like moths towards a flame or like a gravitational pull other people in whom something is being activated and it's their perception their perception of what Eckhart is dim though it may be is activating for lack of a better word, something in themselves, creating a reciprocal response itself, of course, dim, but nevertheless, it's there. And it brings them together. I'm thinking here also of like what Carl Rogers says about the sort of the healthy person, right? And on becoming a person, how the integrated person gives permission to people around them to become persons themselves by being yourself. You give others permission to be themselves, right? To be by being authentically yourself, by having what he calls congruence, you give people around you the permission to become congruent with themselves. This is more bullshit, but I'm just, I'm spiraling through these ideas because it, I just, I've also been reading, I read recently, this talk uh, that Slavoj Žižek was going to give at the University of Nanjing in China, but when he submitted the transcript, they canceled the whole conference <laughs> because it was, at times, he was very, the Chinese government. But he, he also talks, he has a whole section in there, and I won't go into it now over time, but I just want to mention, he has this whole section in there about 
what he calls quantum incompleteness. And it, I think it has really compelling implications for these types of things that we're talking about. Um, so, yeah. So Eckhart as a, as a flame flickering and drawing to him some kind of reciprocal response at an almost quantum level and therefore unconscious to those who are being drawn to them, to him. I think there's something there worth pondering. Well, there's a, there's a tradition, certainly in the yogic uh, history, of people who have attracted uh, followers, and not just followers, people who wanted to sit in the presence, which was described as the radiance of mm. a certain person. Right. And this was called darshan, where the look of the guru, just with a look, could blast through your defenses or could elevate you in a moment. And whether, of course, that was a lasting moment or a fleeting moment, I think it depends on the person. But yeah, there is something there about this idea about attraction. Um, and those who were not as skillful were those who were not as pure. I don't know how to describe it because I don't really know. Mm. Uh, use different techniques. Right, so the Tibetan in the Tibetan tradition, there is something called a dorji, which is an instrument. I've got one <laughs> uh, in my office here, which is used to the the lamas would use it to gather energy, and then they'd fling it uh -huh. uh, allegedly. And then there's something in the uh, Advaita Vedanta, and then maybe it's not Advaita Vedanta. Maybe it's the Kundalini yogic tradition called Shaktipat, where the touch uh, of the guru would be able to you know, blast through your defenses or whatever. Um, and one of those Swami, Swami Muktananda would use a peacock feather and he would touch his students or people who'd come to see him. Um, yeah, so there is something about people being attracted about at some level, they recognize something in mm. some person, whether it's what you were saying about Carl Rogers and just a, a, a genuine person, an authentic person, mm. uh, or somebody who uh, had transcended personhood altogether. It's fascinating stuff. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We always seem to end up back here. And we always will. <laughs> exactly. And so will you, dear listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Those you of you that haven't fallen in. asleep. <laughs> if, if you are drawn to the bullshit artists, yes, you will be drawn in. Exactly. So, okay, we want to call it quits. Let the people go. Yes, please. Okay. See you next time, folks. <laughs> Toodles.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. 